Well, hello and welcome to uh, episode five of our weekly podcast, Loving Your Garden, uh, with myself, Rod Whiting, and Richard Chuck. Uh, we have a, a splendid guest for you this week. We'll introduce him in just a moment. I just want to briefly say thank you very much indeed to our new subscribers and to our existing subscribers for your wonderful suggestions. We are taking these on board and you will, I think, notice some, some big improvements coming soon as we upgrade our software uh, to improve the sound quality uh, we're also going to be upping the content as well so that you can uh, you can hopefully interact with us and and ask questions and we can come back to you with some expert comments and solutions to your gardening problems uh, that's what this is all about we talk gardening that's all we do on this podcast and we get some very very good guests indeed to help us with that so without further ado let's meet my co-conspirator richard chuck richard how are you I'm very well, Rob. Thank you very much. How are you? Yes, yes. Mustn't grumble. Yeah. I'd like to now introduce you to our special guest this week, uh, who is none other than David Stevens from David Stevens International. He's a, a garden designer to the stars. I, I'm, I'm bigging him <laughs> up here. He's, he, but to be fair, he's been a garden designer for um, uh, more than 50 years. Uh, he knows the business inside out. How are you, David? I'm fine, Rod, and uh, thanks for having me on, and and you, Richard. It'll be a pleasure chatting to you both, and um, I'm sure we'll have a few stories that we can recount to one another. No problem. Uh, that's good to know. Um, well, we're going to start with, uh, if I say Bobby Moore. Richard, are you a football fan? No, but I've, I've definitely heard of Bobby Moore. Well, Bobby Moore was, was one of your first high-profile clients, wasn't he, David? He was, and um, it's, it's one of my first customers was Homes and Gardens, and through Homes and Gardens, it's a wonderful vehicle, and we ran a garden planning service for them, and I was consultant for them for many years, and Bobby got onto Homes and Gardens and said, uh, I've got trouble with my garden, do you, do you know somebody that might be able to help me out? And uh, they said, yeah, we'll send uh, we'll send the young lad down called David Stevens. He seems to be reasonable. <laughs> and uh, so I went. I had a little Renault van then. There's nothing posh. You know, we all start off somewhere. I got this Renault van. I motored off down to Hornchurch in Essex. He was an Essex lad, rolled up at this wonderful, to me, palatial mansion, which was classic Essex house with a big portico at the front. I didn't dare drive under the portico. I parked in the street and walked in. Um, but <laughs> He was the most charming man, uh, no side on him at all. His wife, Tina, was utterly charming as well. They welcomed me into the house, put me at ease because they said it was early days then and this was a grand man to be dealing with. Um, but he was friendly, straightforward, and everybody that I spoke to afterwards said, well, that's what Bobby was. He was a true star and a gentleman, and he was a gentleman. And we got on extremely well from the first minute I walked through the door. I designed his garden. Uh, we got it built. And uh, he was in that house for a good few years. And I know they really enjoyed it. But uh, he was a real pleasure. And tragically, of course, he died when he was manager of Oxford a number of years later of cancer, which was a huge shame. He died far too young, really. Well, I mean, th that was a heck of a start for a, a young fella. Well, you weren't just starting out, but you, you were still very early in your career at that stage. Uh, but it must have stood you in very good stead to have a client like that on your books. It does. And I think the thing about clients and the thing about gardens is they're all different. And I, I always say to people, garden designers 
aren't just people on a podium. We're facilitators. In other words, we take people's ideas, we roll our ideas in, and we make it work for them. A, a garden should fit you like a glove. Um, and people often find inside the house, they can arrange their sitting rooms and they can choose the color schemes, arrange the furniture. But when they move outside, sometimes the, the ideas just dry up. And if you think as a gardener's an outside room, that's precisely what it is. The same rules of space and form and color and all of these things work just as well. But I think people, and you'll know this, Rod and Richard, people get confused over these long Latin names and we have to use them because it's the only way that you can get, hopefully, the right plant every time. So it's a broad church out there. Every design is different. And I'm I'm not disparaging, but I worry about designers say, oh, I specialize in a particular sort of design. What, what's that all about? If you're a designer, honestly, you should be able to embrace all forms of design. Um, I, in fact, started life as an architect. I went to uh, a poly, remember polytechnics? Yeah. What a wonderful, <laughs> what a wonderful educational system they were. It cost us about three and six a term in old, in old money. We had the top tutors. Uh, I started off as architecture, but we were in with the landscape architects. And I thought after a year, this is far more interesting. I think I'll go down that route. So I did five years day release, which was brilliant because you were, I was working at Zion Park in Brentford, which was the Duke of Northumberland's home. It was then the National Exhibition of Gardening. Um, and John Brooks was there. And I worked for John Brooks, Ooh. which, again, was probably about the best introduction you could possibly have um, as to garden design. But Zion Park, of course, being a National Exhibition of Gardening, everybody was there. All the nurseries, all the paving manufacturers, all the sculpture people, everybody in the horticulture world existed. At Zion Park. So, as a young chap, you got to know everybody. My boss, actually, apart from John Brooks, was Percy Thrower. Percy Thrower wow. was working. Yeah, oh, yeah, the old man comes from Shrewsbury, eh? And yeah. Percy was head of um, ICI Plant Protection Division. And of course, uh, they went into Zion Park to set up the gardening centre. And we did see Percy occasionally, but he was hard old so and so, but he did <laughs> yeah. know his stuff. Yeah. Um, so it was a wonderful introduction to life in horticulture, I suppose. Um, I, I met, do you know John Negus? I know wonderful the name. John's still a firm friend. And so many, uh, and we used to write for Fred Whitsey on practical gardening. All these people in those days, it was a great uh, melting pot. And this is before the internet, but somehow you all got to know everybody pretty rapidly. And I suppose it's a, it's a fairly small world, the horticultural world. It's still is we, we all know one another and if you get on with gardeners you can get on with anybody can't you yeah. and gardeners are nosy people always looking over the fence to see what's <laughs> going on next door uh, but you find that with the with the um with the, with the website with the um the site oh they're loving, loving your garden yeah yeah, yeah loving yeah. your garden you can yeah. tell yeah. they're all they're all great people aren't they yeah, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, what other gardeners are doing? We like to know that uh, for it's, sure. It's the only, it's, it's the way you learn. Yeah, to be honest, um, I always say to people, they say, "Well, how do I learn about a join your local garden club because you'll get things cheaper as well, um, <laughs> and you'll be amongst friends who point you in the right direction." The problem with gardening and the problem with designing gardens and laying out gardens, it takes time. Mm. Time for things to grow. The reason that BBC do cookery programs, well, you can do the flipping dish in five minutes, can't you? But with yeah. gardening, it's going to take you three years at least to see any real results coming out. So it's, it's a different medium altogether. 
Well, yeah. and here's the problem. Uh, you, you see with the cookery shows, you're right. Um, they've got an hour and you see them under pressure. They've got to get this 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 first class meal out in an hour. Uh, and then the judges all taste it. And you're thinking, how long has that dish been sat there waiting for the camera crews to, you know, get around, exactly. get little pictures and everything? It must be stone cold when they taste it. Yeah, there's always the, the one I prepared earlier in the oven, isn't there? And then, and then the <laughs> you turn it around with gardens, you know, with all these gardening programs, makeover programs, and, and they've got to do it all instantly. Instantly, um, which of course is not how it works in real life, is it? And it's a problem because some of these programs, the landscapers get upset because they're not really truthful about the cost of materials and the cost of labour and the time that things take. I mean, I suppose the first one really was Ground Force, wasn't it, with, with Alan? I loved um, it. <laughs> I loved yeah, it. It, it. It was entertainment, but again, yeah. you wouldn't want to go back there in two or three years' time because they never put a membrane down under the gravel. The deck, well, old, old, um, they used to nail the deck together with brad nails and that sort of thing, but it did look good and it gave people ideas, and that was, you know, that was pretty sensible. So it, it uh, the problem I had was obviously I was designing at that time, everybody wanted to paint their trellis blue <laughs> because that was that was Alan's favourite colour. He was always painting them blue and the decks as well. Yeah. So, you know, but that's that's what it's all about. It, you can't be too serious about gardening, can you? It's it's You get your failures and you get the successes, but you can't get too gloomy about it, particularly in the spring. I mean, we had that hard frost last night, didn't we? Oh, yeah. My poor old, mag, my poor old magnolia. Yeah. <laughs> is suffering because of that but that's gardening and that's the way it is and sometimes we get a mild winter and sometimes we get a tougher one but you know there we go i've got one thing uh, we we did discuss this with another garden designer a couple of weeks ago um climate change are you noticing that i'm not fully convinced about it um you think we got vicious winters in the 1960s we got blazing hot summers from time to time i mean it's obvious that the carbon problems are getting worse. And the big thing that everybody's talking about now are sustainable gardens and a sustainable environment. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I've got my new garden here and I'm actually horrified as a landscaper of the carbon footprint of of things like porcelain paving. A, you've got to manufacture things, which is all done, largely done abroad now. There's, there's, I think, one manufacturer in the UK doing it. The cost of transport, getting it there, it's horrendous. In our new garden, I've decided to reuse all the materials that are on the site. I've lifted paving, I've lifted walling that's been buried in the ground, I've moved plants about, and so far, all it's cost me is a cost of three skips to get the, <laughs> to get the rubbish out of the way. But I reckon... The garden that I build will have an incredibly low carbon footprint. And I think my whole philosophy of designing gardens is changing in that when I go to a garden now, now what can you save? What can we reuse? A, it's going to save you money. And B, it's going to actually reduce the impact on the environment. I can't think that that's a bad thing. I think really that's the way we must go. Okay, the paving manufacturers may not like it, but I'm designed in this, this garden of mine, uh, a Japanese path where they used all different materials and they put it together and it's absolutely elegant. I mean, it's a beautiful way to use things. So mm. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have a cut and burn, slash and burn policy. There's nothing worse. And clients often say, oh, you know, take it all out, start again. You can take a tree down in five minutes with a chainsaw, but it'll take 20 years to grow back again. We have to think about the environment and what we've got. It really, really is important.
You've mentioned their Japanese garden. Uh, funnily enough, I'm, I'm trying to create, a, a, on a very modest scale, I must add, um, a Japanese garden uh, for, for in, in my garden. So what, as a designer, what are the sort of key things you can do very simply to create that, that sort of Japanese essence? The problem with Japanese gardens really are that, and funnily enough, <laughs> the Japanese, and I've worked in Japan a lot, a lot of the Japanese now want English gardens, which is crazy. <laughs> but that's a totally different story. <laughs> Traditional Japanese gardens were designed by the monks, by the religious people. And it is a highly, highly technical skill. A lot of the secrets of a Japanese garden is pure simplicity. The simple things work the best. And they worked largely with the materials of nature. They worked with stone. They work with um, chippings and gravel. They work with planting. And it was all indigenous planting. And their gardens have a tranquility about them that very few other countries have. If you go to Kyoto, which is, of course, where all the classic big Japanese gardens are, the problem with the tours are they rush you through them in about half an hour. You can't do that. You have to sit down honestly and look and feel the garden. They are simple. They have religious overtones. They use timber, of course. They use timber decking a lot. They use um, simple combinations of grass, just positioning boulders in the right place. They use dry streams. Oh, they use many, many elements, but they're virtually all natural elements. There's very little man-made materials in them. And some of the modern Japanese gardens, absolutely stunning. The ones that are really designed by good landscape architects in Japan, they pushed the boundaries. But we have to remember that the Japanese were building gardens almost when we were, you know, just coming out of living in caves. I mean, it's a long, long civilization, and they've they've made it work. They paired their art forms back. Look at Ikebana, which is the Japanese flower arrangement. So simple, but so subtle mm. at the same time. And it's really exactly the same thing mm. in, a, in a Japanese garden. So I can't tell you how to design a Japanese garden. I can tell you to look at a Japanese garden. And if you look at a Japanese garden, you then start to feel the philosophy behind it. They're fit for purpose, they're fit for the people that design them, and they are, they're kind to the environment and they're gentle on the eye. I think that's what it's all about. And this is a common theme. Richard and I have been speaking to, to a number of gardeners. We had uh, Martin Fish talking about this last week, about, about the importance, if you want inspiration, of, of you must go out and visit gardens. You must go to, to some of the big gardens. We mentioned Barnsdale, didn't we, on Sunday on Boom Radio. Yes. Go to these gardens, take your notebook, take your camera and learn. Mm. And we forget so quickly don't we? And I always say to people, it's no excuse with a cell phone now, a mobile phone, to take your camera with you um, and your notebook and jot the names down. Because I say to people, you know, three of the most ordinary, well, no plants are ordinary, but three very common plants can be put together in a way that you'd never think of. And we'll forget that quickly unless we take that photograph and jot those names down. Uh, and that's what plants and de planting design is all about. I mean, that's a whole different subject, but it's, I paint with plants and I think it's all to do with colour, and movement. And I'm not altogether convinced about the prairie school of gardening with grasses and wildflowers because <laughs> it's, yeah, it's because it is seasonal. And, you know, everybody gets jumps up and down and Peter Udolf, who's a brilliant designer, but it doesn't always work. And some of those gardens need to be so large for it to work because they're working with huge swathes of plants and huge swathes of grasses. And you need the scale and the space to do that. 
I developed my career and I'm still developing. I'm still thinking in new ways. But we were always taught. I was taught by a college planting design by Ben Jacobson, who was a who was a Finnish landscape architect. And we were taught, and I still believe it, that shrubs, which are now a bit of a dirty word with some designers, shrubs are the backbone of a composition. They're the backbone of a border. Then you work in your hardy perennials. Then you work in your ground covers. And the whole thing is a, a combination of scale and form and color. And it's not just hardy perennials and grasses because they only give you interest over a certain period. Only people wisely say, well, we leave the seed heads on for winter when they go brown. Well, yeah, it doesn't look that good, I don't think. I think sometimes it's the emperor's new clothes and people should go back to basics and think how borders can be put together with shrubs and with hardy perennials and with bulbs and with the turning of the seasons. They should look good all times of the year. No excuses at all. So I make no apologies for the emperor's <laughs> new clothes. I don't go down that particular path. Well, I have to jump in here. I have to jump in here, David, because I'm a big perennial grasses man. <laughs> right, yeah, but, but I'm not just that. I totally agree with what you're saying. And the problem is, I do, I love my shrubs. I bought loads of shrubs. I've got aces and all sorts going on here, pitsporums, the locks. That's what I love as well. So I'm not just a perennial man, and I follow Peudle forever and a day. And I totally agree with you. You need a massive garden to put one type of grass down. Now, the problem is that not enough people out there, because we're all learning all the time, understand each plant so they will they will hear the word um, perennials or grasses and they won't choose the right grass because the amount of times i used to sell ornamental grasses and i, I used to sell well still there so there's, there's a miscanthus called variegatus <clears throat> and i could guarantee that people would come up to me and say no i've got that one it runs rampant all over the garden i said no you've got phalaris or underneath here gardeners garters that's what gave them all a bad name this is oh, totally yeah. different Plump former, and they and, and I guess it's sometimes it's because people don't understand the planting, what they're doing, so they've not studied it. They they turn to people like us who, who try and explain it a little bit better to them, but sometimes they're very very idle and they don't want to do the research themselves and find out which of those perennials are going to look good through winter. Because I agree with you, you know, you get yourself a millennia, and it will in by October, bang, it's gone over. Get yourself a good miscanthus like Malapartus. And it will be there all the way through. It'll look cracking from a dip depends where you go from. And I always say, look, get yourself a good miscanthus in there because it brings insects and in, it brings birds in through the winter. And you don't need to worry about it. If you are a bit of an amateur gardener, you can just literally chop that down in February, end of February, and it's done. You're finished. And then it just goes away. But again, like you said, it takes time to grow again. So you need to add interject with your with your shrubs. You're totally right there. Trees. Everybody thinks they can't, oh, I've got, I've got a small garden, I can't fit a tree in. Yes, you can. Definitely can. Exactly. And just, just sideswiping here, David, when you was talking about the Japanese and their naturalistic sort of planting type things, Rod knows me quite well now, and I, I am a skip monster. I will jump into <laughs> skips and see what I can find. I won't find rubbish, but I will, I've got cow drinkers here, old cow drinkers, I've got the old um, water system that comes out from your attic. I've got, I've rescued all those. Um, and I've got telegraph poles. I've got three in at the minute, seven more going in. <laughs> now, it's not tacky. It's going to be cracking. I'm building something called the shack at the minute, which is being made properly. I'm making the shed myself, and it's going to have tin on it, you know, corrugated tin. I'm, I've also, you won't believe this, I've got, you know the cow feeders that go into fields where they put yes. the big A? 
I've got yep. some sheep ones. I've got two sheep feeders in it. And I've got in one of them, I've got a silver jack montii growing in it. And it's just sat on the grass. And then on the other one, I've got Eupatorium. Um, but I try and throw in these wacky things that I'm all man-made. So I'm, I'm going with what you said. I am recycling. I am the great recycler. You're a man Sorry. after my own heart. I, just, yeah. I did going back. I did a I did a garden for a farmer, and uh, farmers are inherently, I won't say mean, but they're very careful. They're very right. careful with their money. He said, "Boy, see what you can find around the yard." He said, "I want a water feature." So we went and looked around the yard, and uh, we found get the same thing. Old cattle trough, all rusted up. So yeah. rusted up. They they spent people spend fortunes on cork and steel now, don't they? Yeah. What yeah, a load of old rubbish is that? Anyway, <laughs> so got you 400, 400, 400 quid for a bowl, you know, in cork and yeah. steel. You get down the farmyard, you can just pick one up for, for nothing. Anyway, so we got a big old water bowl, cattle trough. We found a huge old faucet, a big old tap lying around the place. Oh, we had this wall by the front door. We put the bowl underneath it. We stuck the, the faucet on the wall. We piped the water up from the back, pushed it through. It spouted down into the trough. He was the happiest man on God's earth, and it cost him about <laughs> two bob, you know? Uh, yeah. But it proves again that you can, yeah. if you use your eyes and you go around and you've got imagination is the important thing, so, um, and you put it together, you can create wonderful things for not a lot of money, and they can be stunning as far as, as design is concerned. It really is. Yeah, well, so, that must, I'm with you all the way. This must be a bit of a conundrum for you then, because you, I mean, you've dealt with obviously some very wealthy uh, individuals for, for, for whom money, when it comes to getting their garden looking great, is no option. And so uh, when they come up with these vast sums of money and say, uh, well, look, you know, I want, uh, you know, lines of, of oak trees and all of this stuff, it, you, it, for you as a business, as a business person, it, you're thinking, well, OK, that's what they want. That's what I'm going to give them. I'm going to make a bit of money off off the back of it. That's fair comment. But on the other hand, if you almost if you go back to Capability Brown, that's what he was doing. He was digging the lake and creating the ice house, which was dug into the spoil from the lake. He was moving mature trees on carts with horses pulling them. But he was improving a landscape or creating a landscape, which in fact was an amazing habitat. And very often if we do a big garden, I've finished a big one in Bristol and I'm working on one now, we're putting in a lot of water. But as soon as you do that, you see the wildfowl coming in. You see mm. insect life, you see butterflies, wildflower meadows. If you let ordinary grass grow, it's marvellous. Yeah. And then you mow paths through it. It's a wonderful habitat. All sorts of critters and creatures and insects and everything else are in it. So whether the scale is large or small, and okay, if you create a lake and you plant woodland, it is costing money, but you are improving the environment at the same time. And all I would say to people, and I do say to people, I won't specify porcelain paving. I'd rather use the natural sandstone, which at least has come out of the earth locally, rather than bringing in something from the other side of the planet. What you know? What's the point of that? Because we can use materials that we've got to hand, and they really, really are elegant, and they work well. I mean, you don't have to answer this, but I mean, have you walked away from a client because of the unreasonable demands? I've walked away from one or two clients over my career who simply wanted me, and I'm not boasting in any way, because of my name. Right. I remember 
driving from, we used to live in Buckinghamshire, and I drove up to a place near Fakenham in Norfolk, which is over your way, not so far away, over in yeah. East Anglia. That bloke, John Sterling's guy. Yeah, I was going to say, he's, yeah. he's, he's got <laughs> bought himself anyway. an estate there now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I drove over there, and it's about a three and a half, four-hour drive. And you get there, uh, and he's late for the appointment. He, he's got a factory down the road, which is only five minutes. He's late. And I've driven four hours, so I'm not very happy because I'm tired. He comes in, he doesn't even bother to offer you a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Then he starts waving a stick about where he wants this, that, and the other. And I said after half an hour, sorry, I can't work this for you. We're just not getting on. And he was so surprised because I don't think anybody had ever said it to him before. And to be fair, I sent him the bill for the site visit and he paid up by return of post. But some people you just cannot work with. And I I say to, to young designers now, if I'm teaching, I said, if you don't get on with somebody, there's no point in working for them. Right, we, we, the yeah. signal is not great, so I'm going to wrap this up now, David. But let me just ask you one more question. What is the, the job that you're most proud of? It's a difficult one because every job is important and every job means a great deal to the people who employ you. I think I did years and years ago on Schlesinger who was a very famous film producer yeah, and an incredibly humble man. And he lived in a tiny house in Kensington with a tiny little backyard. And he wanted a garden. All it was was a lump of concrete, basically. And I worked hard on it. And we created, if you like, a little oasis in the heart of the city. And here was a man who dealt with major film stars in the world. He was a wealthy man, but he wanted all he wanted was a small garden that he could sit in and enjoy. And we gave it to him. He was so pleased and so happy. And he wrote me the most charming letter afterwards. And to me, I think it's not big jobs or huge jobs. It's the people you work for. And if you give them joy and you give them pleasure, I mean, what else do we need to ask for garden do that i feel we've done our job fantastic yeah well david uh, listen i could i could listen to you all night i really could but uh, i think we've detained you long enough i will just ask one more thing three sure. basic rules for gardeners at all levels you know who want to get the best out of their gardens what are those three things we need to bear in mind the most important thing i think is if you move into a new home don't do anything for a year Wait and see what happens with the turning of the seasons. Bulbs are up, crocus, daffs, tulips, then your hardy perennials, and so you go through the season. And in doing that, the sun swings higher in the summer and dips lower in the winter, and you start to understand the space that you're living in, and that's desperately important. The second thing is, don't believe everything you see on a TV programme or <laughs> reading books. Yeah. That is not the way to go. There are so many... things that aren't correct in books and certainly so many things that aren't correct on television and I won't go into details on that Um, and I think (laughs) the third thing and it's something that Jeff Hamilton was a friend of mine um, and I was with him on Gardener's World right the way back at the beginning when Jeff actually started at Barnsdale Um, and Jeff was the first organic gardener and I think if we garden organically and if we dig compost and well-rotted manure into a heavy soil and good soil equals good plants. If you've got good soil, 
you will succeed. Thank you so much for your time. I, as I say, I could listen to you all night. Fantastic. And, uh, uh, I look forward to chatting to you again sometime, especially on Boom Radio at some point. I'll see you soon. Cheers, all the guys. best. Well, what a great guest, uh, Richard. I, I said we could listen to him all night, and I really could have done. What, what an amazing guy. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I had so many questions I wanted to jump in on, and I didn't because he was just he was on a roll just talking about what I love. And I thought, oh, I want to ask this, and I want to ask And in my head, I had several questions I was going to ask him, and I never got to one of them because he, he was blowing my mind too many times. So absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, that's what this is all about. And I, I hope uh, we, we will continue to get guests of that calibre. So, Richard, what's, uh, what's your big job this week? This week, I'm still building this shack. I spent the old bank holiday putting, to get, putting on it, believe it or not. Um, you know, pallets that you get where you get your yeah, boots yeah. on. I put them onto the front of the shack. The rest is having corrugated tin. But the front, I wanted to look a bit different. So so I'm still kind of working on that. But there's so many plants at the moment that I'm wanting to... I've got some... I keep buying them, Rod. I can't stop myself. I'm, I'm totally addicted to it. And I've got... I must have 20, 30 plants that have got to go in. They're not going to get in. Um, but I'll keep them in the pots. And I'll just keep my eye on... Well, we're going to get some frosted plants, aren't we? So I've got to keep my eye on those anyway. Mm. You won't believe it at the minute, Rod. I've got something called a Rio... A Rheum Palmatum Atrosanguinium. It's like a rhubarb, an oh, ornamental rhubarb. And it's, easy easy and for I'm you to hot. say. <laughs> well, yeah, it's quite easy. But anyway, I've got this tin bucket over the top of it at the minute to protect it from the frost. I am that sad because that one in particular, these frosts will they will not kill it, but they will knock those new leaves back. Yeah. And I'll be waiting another month before they come out again. And, yeah. and that's annoying. And I've learned from the past get something over it protect it well i'm still weeding i've been trying to weed my garden for the last uh, i've still got to get the aerated the lawn aerated and i've got to get some overseeding done but the weather at yeah. the moment so there's no great rush is there i mean it's going to be cold for another no. week so we'll be okay right uh, richard great to see you and uh we'll be back next week i'll see if uh, john stern yeah. will do a term for us and yes. uh, we'll see you on episode six of loving yeah, your garden Write it down. Use those one, two, three, four, cross for five so you know where we are. <laughs> so if I can remember how to right. count. Yeah, that would be yeah. a good start. <laughs>